Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good morning, yes. My name is Garrett. Um, I am a volunteer and guest speaker here at Restoration. If you are new visiting us today, uh, we want to just welcome you. Thank you so much for coming. If you're not new or visiting, thank you for getting up and coming to church anyway. It's good to see everyone. So let's hop right in. <laughs> hop. So speaking of that, made my own little personal joke. And you can feel free to laugh. By all means, I'm going to tell a lot of dry jokes. So please laugh. It makes me feel better. Um, but with that, uh, you may have already forgotten, but Easter was last Sunday. I know for the audio record, it is hard to believe that that happened because it's still snowing. And we're supposed to get more snow today. It's on April 8th, and we're going to get two to three inches of snow. So let's pray that that doesn't hit and that spring finally arrives on that. That's right. Amen. So with that, uh, we are in a message series that is kind of relating around Easter and not making it so much as just a one-time celebration that we have once a year, but kind of continuing on the themes and what we know from Easter into our everyday life. I think a lot of times what happens is that we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the Holy Week, and then we forget about it once Easter is done. We put away all the decorations, we kind of go back to normal life, and we really forget that Christianity centers on Easter and what happened on Easter. And if we would take those purposes and take those truths into our everyday life, would it change how we live? And I think it would. And so we're going to kind of go over and try to remind ourselves of this Easter theme throughout the year. And today, we're going to be talking about a little bit more of after Easter. What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? What happened? What's next? Because there is a continuation of that story all the way up into today. So to begin with that, I'm going to say one thing I really enjoy doing with my wife is that we like to watch movies and TV together. Right now, we're on a kind of a binge of watching cooking shows. I love to cook. So I love watching cooking shows. Um, Amy, not so much. She likes to fast forward through everything to get to the final product. She doesn't like the process. I like the whole thing. But one that we're getting in is called uh, Nailed It. And if you, um, if you ever heard of Pinterest or a Pinterest fail, this is basically a culmination in a, to a TV show where these amateur bakers try to create these really fancy desserts. And most of them fail pretty spectacularly. And it's really funny to watch and be like, oh, they're so bad at cooking. And it's funny because it's as, as we were watching one of these, I was trying to make a peanut butter Rice Krispie bars. <laughs> and by the time that episode was done and I was done, my Rice Krispie bars were like just, they fell apart and they turned into like just crumbs. And I just revamped it and said that it was peanut butter granola and brought it into work and people thought it was great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> So I could be on that show. But why I bring that up is because we love to kind of laugh at those little failures in life. Like, those are really easy. I can look back at mine and kind of just laugh at that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum are these failures that we have in life that really can drag us down. Um, a great place we see this is in sports. Um, I should know, as a Minnesota Vikings fan, I really am trying to figure out where do you have grace when we just can't seem to win and how do you have a good outlook on life when your Minnesota Vikings can't seem to clinch anything? But at the same time, people are like, oh, well, let's have grace. You know, they're just people. So I, I get it. There's this tug and pull. But one thing that you really see in sports here is that there really does not seem to be much grace for failure. And a good place to see this is actually happening right now with a man by the name of Tiger Woods. Now, if you know Tiger Woods, he is a famous golfer. He won the Masters, which is kind of like the Super Bowl of golf. 
um, when he was only 21. So just spectacular. As a kid, he had so much talent. Uh, but then he's kind of fallen by the wayside here. He's done a lot of um, things that have kind of gotten rid of his fame or people don't look at him the same way anymore. And so this year, what's unique about this is that he's coming back. He actually um, was looking really good for the longest time. He just didn't seem to really have the spark he once had. Um, but this year at the Masters, he seems to be doing a lot better. And a lot of people were really excited. A lot of reporters were really kind of hovering in of, you know, is this Tiger Woods' redemption year? Um, and as of today, it doesn't look like he's going to win the Masters. looks like he's not going to pull that in. He might have a chance to um, at least be on the list, but maybe not so great as what he wanted to. But I'm going to read just an excerpt here from Golf Digest because they're the experts on golf. They write about it every day. Just to kind of give you a spectrum of where we're coming at here. So Tiger Woods is 10 years removed from his last major victory, five from his last regular win, and not yet one full circuit round the sun from the public shaming of a DUI mugshot photo that badly indicated physical and psychic rock bottom. A tapestry that began with a father and the prophecy that his son would do more to change the world than Gandhi. And for a time, that not seeming altogether unreasonable, unraveling into the most painful public divorce since Henry VIII. Then followed in bewildering order by rehab, addiction, withdrawals, surgeries, chunk chips, cruel internet memes, and full grace, uh, and, fall, and a fall from grace so hard and fast to forever serve as a paradigm in the billion-dollar business of celebrity endorsing. All this now returning in form to place where he changed the world 21 years ago as a 21-year-old black man who won the Masters by 12 shots. Tiger Woods was on top of the world, and the choices he made dragged him to the very bottoms of that. And it's interesting because our culture and our world, we love a story of redemption. We love when somebody is at their lowest, and they're able by their own strength to kind of muster back and become a champion again. What's interesting, though, is that our culture, we hate failure stories where people don't change and they stay failures, or they just can't seem to ever get back to where they once were or where the world thinks they should be. So it's interesting, as you leave today, maybe just keep an eye on Tiger Woods, see how the press and the reporting affect him after today, because going into the Masters, they were praising him. They were saying that he was going to be the next golf hero, that he was going to be a myth because he's going to redeem himself. So now that he's not going to win the Masters, it'll be interesting to see whether our culture accepts him back into the fold or if they reject him again because he's failed at that. So with that, we're going to move you now into another man who kind of had another fall from grace. His name was Peter, and we're going to follow him today. So if you'd like to turn with me, um, just to kind of get yourself ready in the Bible to John 21, we'll be spending the majority of our time in that. Let me just give you a background indication of who Peter is, in case you're not aware who Peter is. He is one of the disciples of Jesus. He is famous because he's, his name is plastered all over different churches and different universities and even cities have his name. Um, St. Peter was a, was a man that many people look up to as a champion of the faith. He was you know, a disciple that brought the good news and the gospel to many different parts of the ancient world. Um, but that, I think we kind of gloss over some other aspects of his life, so we're going to kind of dig into his life to really see who Peter was as a person and how Jesus really affected his life. Because I think sometimes we see people as superheroes and that we see people as champions, but we forget that they're ordinary people and that they struggle with the things that we struggle with every day. So a little bit of background for Simon, or for Simon Peter is we also call him Simon Peter. You'll see that name throughout the Bible. Um, he is the brother of Andrew. He was a fisherman that was called by God. So his, 
His true calling in life um, before being called by Jesus to be a disciple was to be a fisherman. And that he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was also part of Jesus' inner circle. Now, this is important to note because he was one of kind of, there was 12 disciples, but there was three disciples that Jesus kind of brought into an inner fold of relationship with him, and Peter was one of those. So there's a really strong connection between Peter and Jesus. They're really good friends. And Jesus trusts Peter. He allows him to be in that inner sanctum with him. He was robust, robust, extroverted. He's an emotion-on-the-sleeve kind of guy. He's my kind of guy that puts his foot in his mouth a lot of times and really shows his passion, really shows his, there's never a how you feeling because you know exactly how he's feeling because he shows that. Um, just consider a snapshot of three years in his life that we see in the Bible. He's the only disciple to walk with Jesus on the water to get out of the boat. He's bold enough to get out on the water and walk to Jesus. Um, he rebukes Jesus from carrying um, the cross and choosing to lay down his life. When Jesus says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter's the one to say, no, like, we're not going to let that happen. He doesn't understand that Jesus needs to do this, that this actually has to happen. He's trying to get Jesus to divert to the point where Jesus tells him, you know, get behind me, Satan. It's kind of a big thing for Jesus to say to Peter in that. It kind of wake him up that you're not, you're not knowing this whole part of the story here. You need to pay attention. He's with Jesus in the Last Supper. He makes the biggest stink about Jesus wiping his feet. He doesn't like that Jesus is wiping his feet and that. The other disciples, you know, we're not sure. The Bible doesn't say if they were kind of feeling the same thing. But Peter very much says that he doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And he's like, hey, well, wash all of me then. He's just not getting in. He's saying a lot of things that are kind of, Peter, you need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> um, he went insane and cut off one of the guards. Um, so when the Pharisees came to arrest Jesus, he went and attacked one of them and cut off one of their ears. He had, I guess he was carrying a sword on him. Um, kind of very much like a Minnesotan. I feel like we all have, if you, I feel like a true Minnesotan, and I'm not because I don't carry one on my, but I feel like whenever I'm up north visiting relatives and stuff, and like we need a knife or something, somebody always pulls one out. It's like, oh yeah, I got one in my pocket. Here we go. So maybe Peter was a true Minnesotan in that he carried a knife on him at all times. I know in the cities we don't think about that, but if you go up north, ask people for a knife to cut something, it's going to be produced in under five seconds. I can guarantee you that. So he cuts off this guy's ear. He just, they're arresting Jesus, and all the disciples are kind of afraid, and Peter just cuts off this dude's ear. He just acts without thinking sometimes. And Jesus tells him, hey, we're not going to fight here. This is not how this is going to happen. And he actually heals the guy and gives the guy like his ear back on that. He also said, hey, Jesus, you know, at the Last Supper 2, when Jesus says, you're going to all betray me, Peter is the one who kind of also speaks up and says, hey, Jesus, even if all these other disciples, if these other guys betray you, so he throws all the disciples under the bus, even if everyone else betrays you, I never will. I'm with you all the way, even to death. And that's in Matthew 26. And so I'm going to read that excerpt for you quickly here so you get an idea of just what he's trying to say here. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So all the disciples tell Jesus, Hey, we're not going to abandon you. Whatever happens, you know, in the next couple of days, we're not going to leave your side. Is that what happens? 
For those of you who are in church on Easter or during Holy Week, you may have heard the story that that is not what happens. And so we're going to continue that story now with Peter. If you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Luke 22, verse 54. So just uh, bookmark 21, and you can turn over to Luke 22 here. So what happens, I'm going to give you kind of a background, and then we'll go to where, P- where Peter's at. Basically, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, all his disciples disperse, and they run away in fear. Um, so the disciples said they wouldn't abandon Jesus, and they actually all abandoned Jesus. And it gets lower than just that. Not only did the disciples abandon Jesus, we have one of the disciples, Judas, betray Jesus to his enemies, sells him out. We have all the disciples scatter and leave. The only people who really stick close to Jesus during this whole time, from him being arrested to him being put on the cross, is a couple women. They're with him by his side. They watch the whole process. But one thing that um, my wife noted that I thought was really interesting, too, is that when Jesus is carrying his cross to um, be crucified, and he struggles, some of the Gospels tell us that he struggles with carrying his own cross, and they had to find someone in the crowd to carry his cross. Where were his disciples? Where were the people that said that they loved him? to help him with that burden. They were nowhere to be found at all. So Jesus has been completely abandoned by those who say that he loves him. Now we want to zero in on Peter because that's the guy that we're looking at today. So in Luke 22, it says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So it's interesting to note, and not all of the gospels here, so not all of the first four books of the New Testament, um, talk about that Jesus actually looks at Peter. Some of the gospels, they do put that in there. Can you imagine Telling Jesus to his face, I will never betray you. I will never abandon you. And then you're there in the courtyard telling these people, because you're in fear, that I don't know Jesus. There's even one that states, one of the gospels that states that he is cursing himself on that last one. He's like putting a curse on himself, saying that I don't know who Jesus is. So kind of in the same, like, you know, I curse my kids that I don't know. It's like, why would you even say that? That's like insane. Um, don't do that. <laughs> but Peter does. Peter is so adamant about the denial that he's willing to do that. And just think about that. As he's saying that, he might have made eye connection with Jesus. And that rushes back in this feeling of, oh man, Jesus told me I would fail and I just have three times. And it wasn't just a small thing because the scriptures tell us that he went outside and wept bitterly. He knew his sin. He knew his failure. And we can see that in his reaction to what he's done. He has this complete breakdown and just weeps. Another interesting thing to note, too, during this whole time is that as Jesus is going through from being arrested to the cross, 
he has this reminder of why he's dying, right? All these failures from his disciples, the abandonment, Peter's denial, the people's hatred. He's dying for these people. I don't know about you, but that'd be a really hard pill for me to swallow, right? I wouldn't be dying for these people. These people don't deserve it. And we think about that too in the sense that if there was any other way that this could happen, Jesus was all for that. He's like, hey, I will take any other way. But God is like, no, this is the only way. And so Jesus just humbly obeys and says, okay, your will be done. But he's dying for these people that have completely failed him in every instance. And yet he still does. He still dies for us. He goes through this, this whole excruciating process of the cross. For those who are history buffs, um, the Romans were really good at killing people. They knew how to create fear and control. And that's why the crucifixion was a popular way at the time, because it created this sense of fear and control to all the other people out there. Basically saying, don't do what these people have done, or this will happen to you. And it's interesting, because crucifixion is such a terrible way to die, that the Romans had to create a word, excruciating, to just show how awful that process is. So that's why I always kind of balk when somebody's like, oh, this pain is excruciating. It's like, eh, if you've Maybe on the cross you can say that, but other than that, maybe find a different word. Because the Romans had to find a different word to just express how awful that actually was, to die on a cross. And yet Jesus did that in the midst of the failures of everyone around him. So what's the point? Where are we going with this, Garrett? You're probably wondering for yourself. And what I'm trying to show you here is that I want you to see that Peter is at his rock bottom. He has completely failed miserably for being a disciple and follower of Jesus. He's abandoned him right to his face. He's had that eye contact. He's outside weeping bitterly. So I'm gonna keep it simple here. So kiss, I've made it more kid-friendly here. So keep it super simple, right? I wanna make it simple for you guys here today. So I want you to have two questions that you keep in the back of your mind going forward. What does Peter do is the first one. And how does Jesus respond to that? So now if you want to turn yourself to John 21, we'll be there in just a second. But first off, as I was trying to prepare for this sermon, I was kind of going through this whole process of what happens on kind of when Jesus enters Jerusalem all the way up to when Jesus rises from the dead, because that was Easter, right? We celebrated that during Easter, that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he is now alive, and that can bring us hope, and that can bring us peace, because he's conquered death, and he has atoned for our sins, which basically means that he's paid for our failures and for our mishaps. Jesus took all that punishment so that we can live free in his grace. That's Easter. That's the truth of Easter is that we're saved by the blood of Christ. But now moving forward, how does that relate? How do we take that truth and make it relate moving forward? And we're going to see a beautiful example of this in the life of Peter as well. Now think about this. If you're Peter, if you've denied Jesus you know, all these things are happening. You don't understand what's going on because the disciples didn't get it. Jesus kept telling them, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and die. And he kept dropping hints and his disciples weren't getting it at all. So now when it actually happens, there's this whole confusion going on. People are not sure what's going on. Um, there's this kind of the sadness because people are like, okay, is Jesus dead? What's going on? We're not sure. And the next part of the story is that we see that Jesus rises from the dead and starts appearing to his disciples. 
Now, I kind of took that, and I think I have a timeline to share. Maybe we have a timeline up there. Um, and it's just an interesting fact, because I was going through this. I'm like, all right, where does this work? Because I know that Jesus appears to Peter in the course of this, right? But what was interesting, ooh, and that's kind of fuzzy. So what is, what basically what we're doing is we're taking all the accounts that we read in the Gospels, and we're putting it into a timeline of when did they happen on a linear structure. And what I realized when I did that is that Jesus appears to Peter first. He's the first disciple that Jesus appears to. And it says that, um, let me see here, look at my notes. We have um, a couple verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Um, this one says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is Paul. He's talking to the Corinthian church, just to give you a background of this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas is another name that Simon Peter had. So he's saying that Jesus first appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the disciples. So Paul is kind of giving just a rundown to the Corinthian church of here's what's happened. You know, here's the linear projection of when Jesus raised from the dead. Here's, here's who he appeared to. And it's interesting because he notes that Cephas, Simon Peter, was first. The Bible doesn't make much more mention of that. There is another part in Luke that does make mention, and I won't read that one, but it's Luke 24, um, 34. And what it says basically is that Jesus appeared to Simon Peter. And I remember kind of scratching my head. I'm like, I would have loved to know what Jesus said to Simon Peter that moment, right? And we can only speculate. We can only guess because the Bible doesn't make it clear. And I think in some ways, that's intentional. I think that conversation between Jesus and Peter is meant to be left personal. There is a personal connection, and we'll see because we can connect it to the next uh, process of the story that we see. But there was something that happened within that first meeting that changes Peter to some degree. And I think it's interesting as well because Jesus makes an effort to appear to Peter first. He doesn't appear to Peter as a group. We see with James. So most people know James as the doubting disciple, doubting, or sorry, Thomas. Thomas is known as the doubting disciple, doubting Thomas. We see that, you know, Thomas has his display of doubt and Jesus appears to him in a crowd setting with the rest of the disciples and tells him, hey, don't doubt me, believe. Peter gets a personal connection with the Lord, a personal meeting with the Lord in that. So just keep that in mind as we go out through the story is that Jesus cares enough. And the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus cares enough for each person that relationship is vital to Jesus. I think sometimes we think Christianity is just a religion. It's an easy thing to call a religion and ask the box that we check when it's, what religion do you follow? Oh, I'm a Christian. But I think what we forget is that Christianity is not just a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. And Jesus cares much more about our relationship than our religion. In fact, religion can be a burden on people. I had a pastor, um, one of my uh, pastors of a church I used to go to, used to always have a phrase that religion will kill you. It's all about a set of laws, and you have to follow them. And if you're good enough at the end of that, you get into heaven. That's religion. That's what some people follow. We don't in Christianity. It's a relationship with Christ. That's what makes this different, is that we have a relationship and that God is building us up and we're learning who he is and we're living by his example and by his grace. 
So now that brings us into John 21. So Jesus has appeared to Peter. We've seen that. Um, but he's still kind of showing people that he's alive again. It's interesting because he's showing up a lot of the times in groups so that people kind of have the same eye account, right? You're not going to believe one person who just saw an event. But if you have multiple records of that same event from maybe different places in an area, you're going you're gonna to have a better chance of believing that. So let's say if a UFO came over and flew over Minneapolis. If one person saw it and started saying that, no one's going to believe him. They're going to think he's wacko. But at the same time, let's say if that UFO was flying around. I probably shouldn't use a UFO. That's probably a bad one to use um, because God is real. God is not a UFO. Um, so I just want to make that mindset where people are like, why are you comparing God to a UFO? But it's just a good, it's a good analogy here. Follow with me. So let's say if that same, you know, let's just use a plane. Let's say a blimp. A blimp's flying through Minneapolis. And everyone sees that blimp, from, but from different sides of the city. And all these people are like, oh, yeah, I saw the blimp. It was over there by the Fauchet Tower. And other people are like, yeah, it was over there. Multiple people, if they, say the same, if they see the same thing and say the same thing, it's much more reliable than just one person who's like, oh, man, I saw something in there, and I have no idea what it was. Right? So I think Jesus is purposely appearing to multiple people for that reason, is that people are like, yes. Like, Jesus appeared not just to one person, Peter. He started appearing to a lot of other people and that to show that he was alive. So then we go into John 21. I'm going to read this account for you, and then we're going to dissect it from there. John 21 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another good thing to note. Jesus has not just shown up once. Hey, I'm alive, guys, and then disappeared. He's continuing to have this process of appearing to his disciples, and we'll see why in just here in a second. And he revealed himself in this way. So this is one of his meetings that's on here for the timeline. This is one of the last meetings that he'll have his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were um, not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, or went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Then Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. So let's break down the story here. We see that Jesus is, once again, he's working on the relationship with the disciples. He doesn't care about their religion as much as he cares about their relationship. And we see this whole passage speaks to this close relationship that he has with his disciples. We see that Jesus cares about what they're doing. They're not catching any fish. Some, and this is kind of a backwards thing, but some scholars kind of argue about what does that mean that Peter and them are going fishing again? Does it mean that they're turning back to the life that they once had before Jesus and that Jesus kind of needs to change their route and be like, no, 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 like you're not fishermen anymore. You're now fishers of men. Your life is changing. Your whole life principles are going to be changed. Other people would just say that Peter is just acting out of pure survival mode in the sense that they've been kind of hiding from the law because they're terrified that if they kill Jesus, they might kill them, and they need to eat, and they don't want to maybe go into the market to buy their food, so they're kind of fishing for themselves. They're trying to find sustenance as they wait for the Lord, as they've been instructed to do. So there's kind of some arguments and difference, and so I'm not going to land on one of those just for the sake of time. Um, but what we can see here is that there is this importance of relationship, that Jesus is on shore, and that he's sitting there making them breakfast. I mean, if he's just there to scorn and yell at his disciples because they all abandoned him, he's like, look what all I did. I died on a cross for you, and this is all you're going to do? That's not what Jesus has. Jesus has a fire and food ready for them. All right, we eat over, or sorry, we have relationship over food. That is just a human thing that we do. In the Bible, whenever we see somebody eating, it's supposed to mean that they are forming deep relationship with one another. Jesus is adamant about building and forming a relationship. And I love the response to Peter. There are some things to note here that we want to when we're going into this, is that Peter still greatly loves the Lord. It's proof by his action. Jesus still greatly loves Peter and his disciples. It's proved by his actions. And lastly, Jesus strikingly uses the question three times to parallel Peter's denial. So we see that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Not once, not twice, but three times. And how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Not once, not twice, but three. We see this redemption cycle that Jesus is taking those denials and he's redeeming deeming Peter. He's not going to leave Peter in his failure. He doesn't want Peter to have that as a burden. He's going to redeem Peter from them. And I love how Peter reacts. I love that Peter, in classic Peter sense, jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. And I pointed out earlier that Jesus and him had a conversation, right? He appeared to Peter before he appeared to the disciples. So there's this idea that Peter has somewhat of a relationship still with Jesus. He doesn't feel like an outcast and an outsider. He might have his doubts, but he jumps into the water and swims to Jesus. I love that because I wouldn't do that. I don't like getting wet <laughs> in this sense. I'd be one of the guys like, I'm good. I'll be in the boat. I'll be there like in a couple minutes, you know? And so it's one of those things that Peter's just adamantly in love with the Lord. He cares deeply for the Lord. He dives in and swims to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes him. He sits down, he breaks bread, has breakfast, and restores his disciple. So it, we reach the moment here in my sermon where if you've been kind of dozing off or you've been zoning out, 
This is the key of the message. So you can write this down and impress people when it's like, what'd you learn on Sunday? And instead of being like, uh, you can just say this little sentence and people are like, oh yeah, you listened the whole time to Garrett. <laughs> the key to this sermon is this. Failure does not define who you are, but it can control who you are. Failure is only an event. It's never a person. I think too many times when it comes to sports, when it comes to cooking shows, we're always like, oh, they failed. They're such a failure, right? It's something that we attach to people's identities. It's an event. It's not a person. And just because you failed at something doesn't mean that you are a failure. Too many of us walk around thinking that we are failures because of the things that we've done in our life that we're not proud of. And we bring that same idea into the concept when we come into church. And we bring that same concept and idea when we view Jesus and how he sees us. Even some of us might be in here today saying, well, Garrett, I get it. I get it. You're up there. You're talking about the gospel. You probably have your whole life together. That's why you're up there preaching because there's trust built because you have your life together. I don't. Let me tell you that right now. I don't have my life together. I don't want you to have me be your pinnacle of what Christianity should look like or what a relationship with Christ should look like because I don't have it all together. I have a messy relationship sometimes with the Lord. Your pinnacle should be Jesus. He's gonna be the guy that you look at and you wanna emulate. And I think we have this idea that we look at other people around the church, we start comparing ourselves to others and we're like, I don't amount to that. Well, if they only knew my past, I'd never be accepted. I'd never be loved. If people knew what I really did or what I would think what I think at night, people would not love me. And that's not the truth. We see that because we see that how uh, Jesus relates to Peter, right? Peter hit rock bottom. He was a disciple of Jesus for three years. He talked face to face with Jesus and then denied him to his face. You can't get much worse than that, folks. You basically told God that, nope, no thank you. And what does God do? How does God act in the situation? How does Jesus react? Because get it, Jesus died on the cross. He still has the scars when he appears to his disciples from the event. So I assume that he probably remembers that event to some degree, right? If the physical scars are still there, I'm pretty sure there might be some mental scars there still too. He remembers being crucified. And that's just my assumption, so don't take that as biblical. But I assume that Jesus remembers that whole situation. And yet for him to appear to his disciples and say, I love you, and not only do I love you, I'm willing to break bread with you and restore this relationship with you. You think if I, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, well, you all failed. Gonna go find some new disciples. Because we see that Jesus had many different disciples. I know we have the 12, but there's also other disciples within the larger group of Jesus. You think Jesus would be like, well, those 12 guys failed. I'm going to go find some other people within my larger group and raise up new disciples. He doesn't do that. He cares so much about building relationship that he's going to restore his disciples back to their former glory and even beyond that when he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. So with that, in closing here, I want to give you guys just a couple things to take note of. Today, we might be feeling good about ourselves, right? We're not really struggling with too much. We're, we're staying on the good, straight, and narrow. And there might be others of you who are like, I'm completely far from Jesus. I have no idea, Garrett, what you're talking about. 
And I want to let you know that the Bible gives good news to both situations. Or, well, good news and humbling news, depending where you're at in the spectrum. Romans 3.23 says that, For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's good news for everyone is that we're all in the same boat, right? We all start in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. We are in need of Easter. That's why we celebrate Easter is because we are free from our sins because of Easter. The gospel is for everyone. We're all there together. But we have that good news, right? We have the good news of Easter, that we don't have to be in sin. We don't have to be burdened by that because we have Jesus who sets us free from our sins. Another fact here is that sins do not define who you are. I think we see that a lot in the church. And I'm not, when I say the church, I'm not just saying, I'm not saying restoration. I'm saying the larger whole as a church. I think sometimes we have people that walk around and say, I'm this and I struggle with this. Or I'm this because I struggle with this. We make our sins define who we are. And we shouldn't be doing that. If you are saved by the grace of God, you are loved by Jesus and you're redeemed by Jesus and you are defined by Jesus. He calls you loved, cherished. You are children of God. You are his kids. And he's a better parent than we will ever be. There's nothing you can do to rip you from the hands of God. No failure can make you too far from God to love. And that's when you begin your walk with God, during your walk with God. Doesn't matter. 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that I learned as a little child, and I think it's a great verse, is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I learned that at VBS as like more of a rap. I'm not going to rap it for you. But it's a good verse to know because no matter what you do, the grace of God is there. And God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. Here are some bullets here that if you want to write these down real quick as we're kind of wrapping this up. So you're never too far from the Lord. No matter what you do, you're never too far from the Lord. You will never fail so much or so hard that God will give up on you. You may not be able to change your past, but Christ can change your future. And then lastly here, our failures might pressure or tempt us back to living in a way that is not what Jesus wants from our life. Don't let that get there. Don't think that your failures disqualify you from living for Christ. Don't think that the things that you do that are failures move you away from God's love. We see that in Peter's life that that's not what happens. We see in the disciples' lives, that's not what happens. Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants to restore you. And he wants to redeem you. And we need to understand, too, that in some degree, failures are a part of life. We're going we're gonna to struggle. We're going to fail. We're human. Jesus gets that. That's why there's grace. That's why Christ died on the cross for us, so that we would be covered in his grace and love. So in closing... My challenge for you is to dive in. Dive into God's grace. Just like Peter, who recklessly jumped from the boat to swim to Jesus because he knew he had a relationship with Jesus. He knew that Jesus loved him and that he wanted to restore him. Dive into God's grace. And I'm not saying dive in and sin all you want because you're covered by grace. 
That's not the message here. So don't take that with you. Paul makes that very clear in scripture that we are not to sin so that grace abounds. But what we're there to do is that grace gives us this power and this calling to love greatly for Christ. Because what's great about that is when we are greatly forgiven, that overflows and we can forgive others. I know that when I struggle to forgive people, I'm convicted because I'm like, I've been forgiven of so much more. I can forgive this person. Become better people. So dive into God's grace. Let it restore you. You're never too far from God's love. There's nothing you can do to pluck him from his hand. Allow that to seep in. Recklessly dive in for Jesus.